but to be with God's people, with you all, in the house of the Lord, which is his people. The building itself is just a structure, right? It is his people that are his house. And the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Mark. So originally in the series, I was planning on doing um, on this, this topic of servanthood. I was planning on doing it from John, the Upper Room Discourse. And when I began to look at it this week, I said, huh, you know, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. So why not use something that was probably about a week or so away from Palm Sunday in the book of Mark? So we're just going to look at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. Well, we've been talking about our series, Tree Spirituality, right? And we've talked about that our life of a disciple should be like a tree. The roots of that tree go deep down, and it's our identity in Christ as sons and daughters of God. And today what we're going to look is we're going to look at the trunk the trunk of the tree, the very foundation of all of the fruit that is produced in our lives as Christian, and that is the servant's heart of Christ. Because that heart flows out of the reality of our identity as sons and daughters of God. Now, the scripture is filled with the idea that followers of Christ should be servants. But not many people actually like this idea. We don't like it most times. Why? It, it doesn't seem to produce results, does it? It just makes you tired and weary, right? As you continue to have a servant's heart for those oftentimes who just are not changing, not doing what you want them to do. So few actually seek a life of service and humility. And there's really not many people that are actually motivated to it. I'm going to argue that there's only one legitimate motive to live a life of service and humility. And it comes by looking and listening to Jesus Christ, the first and the greatest, who became last and actually is the greatest servant, because he loved us to the end. He shows us the character of God, and he asks us to walk that character out in our lives from day to day. In Mark 10, 32 to 45, Jesus teaches his disciples this, that the heart of God is the heart of a servant. And we, as God's children, should have this heart, have his heart, the heart of the servant. Why? Because the essence of the gospel is self-sacrificing, self-denying, God-loving, people-caring. Because the essence of the gospel is that the king of the universe would step down from glory and enter this life and serve to the point of death and the, bearing the eternal punishment for our sins. That is the only motivation for service. Well, at least that will, that it's right 
You can serve to get stuff. Right? But that's not the real and good and proper way to serve. Mark chapter 10. Here Jesus is now only weeks or days away from the Passover week. We can imagine maybe that it's close to this time as we think of classic Palm Sunday coming up. Over the course of three years, Jesus is absolutely amazed, many by his authority over human hearts, over the physical world, over the spiritual world, over sickness and disease, and even over sin. He has shown himself to be the true king, and now, in the last few months leading up to his death, he has been teaching his disciples what true discipleship is. He has predicted his looming death two times already, and in this passage, he's going to predict it a third and final time. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem via Jericho, and more than likely with a crowd of pilgrims in tow. The crowd is going to celebrate the Passover, but Jesus is going to be the Passover. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave, but must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord is forever. paused intentionally. Jesus just said to them, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, but I want to allow this to sit and settle in you before we get to the walk through the text. Jesus just said, yeah, I'm going to have all these terrible things happen to me. And James and John are like, can you just give us whatever we want? 
And all we really want is to be the highest and best in, in all, of, all of all humanity. Sitting next to you in your kingdom. We want to be the boss. We want to be at the top. And Jesus' response ended with drawing the disciples back to himself. And so, if I want to teach and preach to you all today that you have to have the servant's heart, the only way that I can do this is do it the same way Jesus did it in this text. To show you and me our desire to be made much of and what we need to do to straighten back out. And that is to gaze at the face of Jesus Christ, his person and work. That's the only way that you can have a servant's heart. That's the only way I can have a servant's heart. So today's text, we're gonna see three things. First, Jesus lives out the heart of God. Second, the disciples miss the heart of God. And third, Jesus teaches the heart of God. Those three things. First, Jesus lives out the heart of God. Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem. You know, the, the Palm Sunday is on its way, right? And he's heading into Jericho, and he's going he's gonna to heal a blind man at Jericho. And actually, it's very allegorical in some ways. It's basically showing the blindness of the disciples. And that's what Jesus does, is he opens our eyes. And so this is what's going on in this passage. But here's what's going on. You have people behind Jesus. The crowd is actually behind Jesus. Jesus is ahead of them. The disciples are with him. And it says, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Do you know what I think, it, why it says he's the, that the crowd was amazed? The disciples and the crowd are more than likely amazed because of how resolutely from Luke 9:51, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem while knowing that death is awaiting him at the hands of his own people. Now, the disciples knew this. The crowd did not yet. They were still expecting him to establish his kingdom. But the disciples knew he had predicted his death, although they didn't quite get it. They were really slow on the uptake, right? But the reality is, is, is that, the, that, that they're looking at Jesus, and, they're, and if you remember back at Lazarus, when, 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 when they're going to, to raise, when Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and they're talking, and the disciple, Jesus is like, well, we're going to go toward Jerusalem or whatever. And they're like, what is wrong with you? You don't want to head there. You don't you know? They're gonna, we'll die too, just like Lazarus. That's what they said to Jesus, one of the disciples. If we go, we'll die just like Lazarus. Is that what you're trying to do, Jesus? Kill us. So they know the danger. So they're amazed at how resolutely Jesus is heading towards uncertain or certain death. And so Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 50, verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, hard, strong. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. That's the prophet prophecy of Christ heading toward Jerusalem. He set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. That's his love for us. That's how deep it is. The crowd's probably afraid here because they've seen John killed already, John the Baptist. They have seen a plot to destroy Jesus already. They saw a commission of Pharisee heretic hunters come out looking to see if Jesus was a heretic or not and trying to trap him in heresy. 
And they may be thinking that they themselves, and why they're afraid, might be caught up in a fight with the rulers and authorities when Christ is bringing his messianic kingdom in. Don't forget, they're still expecting Jesus to come in like with a sword and wipe all these bad dudes out. This is still in their mind. There is this sense of finality. The end is coming. The struggle is going to be over. The Messiah is going to win. And Jesus then separates himself and the disciples from the rest of the crowd, tells them one last time what they should expect as they come to Jerusalem. I mean, they're walking to Jerusalem, and Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. He tells them that they should expect everything that the prophets wrote about the Son of Man to be fulfilled. And so now Jesus gives a mini-summary of the passion of Christ. He would be betrayed to the chief priests, to the teachers of the law. The priests and teachers would condemn him to death. They would hand him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles would mock him. They would insult him. They would spit on him. They would flog him. They would kill him by crucifixion. Then, on the third day, he would rise from the dead. So, there you go. There's the Gospel Week, the Passion Week, right? Right there. The picture's clear. But the meaning seems to be hidden from the disciples. They expect some sort of trouble on the road to victory, but it seems as if they have not actually understood Jesus at all. Second, the disciples missed the heart of Jesus. Shortly after this, and by the way, as I'm explaining the story, I'm taking to you the accounts in the Synoptic Gospels, the other Gospels. So you're, you're going to, when I mention Salome, uh, the mother of James and John, you're like, what's well, this on a text? Well, that actually is in Matthew, who talks about that. So I'm, I'm taking the Gospels, Synoptic Gospels, I'm putting together so you can see the actual story and all the events that, that surround it, okay? So James and John and their mother, Salome, come up to Jesus, and, and basically the mother kneels down on the ground and says, Jesus, would you do me a favor? And like a child unsure of whether or not they should ask this question, they basically ask Jesus to write them a blank check. Now Jesus kind of in his wisdom, replies and says, well, in a sense, it depends. Go ahead and ask. That's really what Jesus is getting at. Right? He doesn't just say, sure! He says, tell me what you're asking. Right? He's saying, it depends. You can't just say anything you want. Based on Matthew's account, it looks like Salome then replies with this ridiculously big request. Grant that my sons will sit on your right and left hand in your kingdom. Then apparently, which is where this story picks up, the brothers echo us, yeah, let us sit at your right hand and left hand in your glory. That's what's going on, right? Mommy's asking, hey, Mommy, can you ask Jesus if we can be around? And then the disciples are saying, yeah, that's what we want. I mean, that's literally what's going on here. So they were asking for the most prestigious and powerful positions in Christ's glory. It was synonymous with the kingdom. They were expecting Jesus to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. And so they want to be in the highest positions of authority in that new kingdom, right? It would be like, you know, you know who's the next president of the United States is going to be, and you, like, get next to him and get close with him so that you can be in his cabinet in the very, that's what's going on. That's what they're, that's what they're asking for. So Jesus responds by telling them that they have no idea what they're asking. He then asks them a, what it seems to be a rhetorical question, which should have been answered no. But they don't answer it, though. They answer it, yes. He uses a metaphor of drinking the cup and being baptized, which was a reference to the death that he would experience for God's glory and our salvation. So, of course they couldn't drink the cup of God's wrath, 
but they were willing to face suffering. That's what they understood that to be for the glory of Well, if I suffer, then I can get this glory through Jesus, right? Then I can say, yeah, I can do it. So they are being loyal and courageous. Very self-centered, but loyal and courageous nonetheless. So let's talk about that cup. The cup in, is an image or a metaphor for Jesus' suffering, right? So in the Old Testament, sometimes it's used for blessing, the cup of blessing I bless with. But at other times, and more often it's used in judgment, it normally denotes the punishment of the wicked. But in Isaiah 51, shortly before this Isaiah 53 we read, 17 to 23, and then Lamentations 4:21, it's used of the suffering of God's people, which will now be passed from them to their oppressors. The cup presents total ruin under God's judgment. So when you read the cup of God's wrath, it's like basically a napalm bomb being dropped. That's the, the feel of the cup of God's wrath. Utter and absolute annihilation. The cup, so, refers to divine judgment on sin, which Jesus will bear on the guilty. And I think I might have perhaps miscommunicated. I, I, was, I, was, I think I, had, I wanted the whole Isaiah 53 read, but I must have accidentally put a zero in front. But in Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says this. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus was crushed. Jesus was pierced for us. See, this is the cup. The baptism, though, has this more of a Greek image. It carries with it the idea of being overwhelmed or being swamped, being flooded by misfortune and sorrow. That's what the baptism is. Flooded by misfortune and sorrow. It's an idea that runs parallel to the cup, right? It speaks of being overwhelmed by disaster, overwhelmed by danger, basically being submersed and plunged into suffering. But Jesus asked them, hey, you ready to be, you know, experience annihilation and plunging into suffering? Sure. It was more than likely used because of the connotation of John's baptism and expressed Jesus' connection with sinful men and willingness to assume the burden of God's judgment. So, both the cup and baptism together signify that Jesus bears the judgment earned by the sins of men. This is Jesus' messianic task. So James and John clearly didn't get this, what they were asking. They boldly set aside Christ's warnings and said, sure thing. Well, Jesus says, okay, yeah, you're gonna. And he tells them they would experience the cup and baptism. I believe that James experienced the cup and baptism when he was beheaded. He was put to death. He experienced that judgment. John experienced it in the Isle of Patmos as he was banished away from all other human contact. They both experienced this judgment. And I, I believe that it was that's what Jesus was talking about. He said, yep, you're going you're gonna to experience this. I don't think necessarily in this case it's really talking about the salvation aspect where you'll experience it through knowing Christ. It seems pretty, pretty clear to me that Jesus is saying, well, you're going to suffer for my sake. So at this, as you can imagine, the other ten disciples are angry. I mean, they are mad. They were more than thinking, what about us? What do you think about us? You two are going to sit at the right and left hand? What are we going to do? 
Are we going to just be like, like little attendants or something? And so they tried to seize an opportunity, right? They're looking at the, the, the James and John and saying, you know what? The nerve of these guys, the nerve of these guys, they tried to seize an opportunity to become the most important people in the kingdom, and they just went ahead and asked Jesus this. So now everybody's mad, right? John and James still will get it. They think that they can handle it. You know, the disciples are angry at them. I don't know what in the world their mother thought when, when she said to experience the cup and the baptism. She might have been like, oh my, maybe I shouldn't approach Jesus and ask him that. So third, though, let's get into this. The Jesus, he teaches the heart of God. Jesus teaches the heart of God. I don't know if you guys like think about this very often, but you know the kingdom of God is upside down from the way the world works. Completely upside down. The world looks like this, and the, and the kingdom looks like this. It just flips it up under, underneath. Jesus calls all these disciples together, and he explains how the Gentile leaders use their power, use their authority to control people, to rule over people with their power. But in the kingdom of God, everything is upside down. The greatest is really the servant of all. The first is the slave of all. Okay? And by the way, so, in the church, sometimes you think, like, elders and deacons, and you put them like this, right, in your mind. But the reality is, is Jesus says that servants, that's where the term diaconate comes from, servants. Those are the great, great ones who serve, the ones who pour out. Service is the definition of greatness, not leadership. Just saying now, the currency of the time can help us here. A denarius had Tiberius as the semi-divine son of God Augustus and the goddess Lydia on it. And another coin had Augustus or Tiberius with the inscription, he who deserves adoration. So on a coin, he who deserves adoration. Worship him, basically, is what they're saying. This is the Gentile leaders. You see, you see why I'm bringing the coin in? Right? In their money. It's like... It wouldn't say, in God we trust. It would say, in Caesar we trust, right? That's the idea, right? Now, in that, um, the rulers of the Gentiles demanded this type of respect and adoration. And the irony is that the disciples are struggling for rank. They're struggling for precedence. They're struggling for authority. Just like the Gentile leaders that they despise and want Jesus to wipe out, they are doing the very same thing. James and John and the other disciples, by their anger at them, are doing the exact same thing that they hate and they want the Gentiles to be wiped out for. Because they have not had their kingdom flipped upside down yet. Jesus had to die for us. The way of the world is to spend all of your time trying to reach to the top. And oh, when you get to that top, you can use all of your weight, all of your power, so that you can experience the exhilaration of being on the top and having others serve you. Is that what people want? I, it was funny. I was talking to my wife and we were driving by something the other day and it was like a, a full service uh, home. I don't know if it was for elderly or whatever. And I was like, man, can you imagine how cool it would be to have hotel service in your home? Would that not be really cool? Like, you do your dinner, and then somebody else comes behind you and cleans up after you. Sweet, huh? But I didn't, it didn't dawn on me until this moment that 
I, that was a really good illustration for the problem with us, with me. Right? Isn't that the, isn't that the illustration of that? Oh, I don't want to serve. I'd rather have somebody else serve me. The world values exercising authority over others, and it has two major principles. The greatest is served by others, and the first gets to do whatever they want without limitation. That's their principle. The greatest is served, and the one who has power and is the highest gets to do whatever they want. There is subtlety, though, in the text. You notice how Jesus says, those considered rulers of the Gentiles? Did you ever catch that small word? Why did Jesus say to those considered rulers? In Daniel chapter 7, verses 12, chapter 7 through chapter 12, we see that earthly rulers are not as sovereign as their people. Behind these rulers stand angelic and demonic forces and ultimately God. And what Jesus is saying is that the worldly leaders are impotent. They are strengthless and powerless. Their power, the rulers of our world, our government, the governments of all the world, they can do nothing. The power that they have is given to them by God, and they can lose that power in a moment. Kingdoms and kings are torn down. The king, the true king, the only king, he is in charge. And the governments that lord it over people, that try to get people to do stuff, whether they're doing good or bad, doesn't matter. Those people in those positions, if they're not serving, they're not doing what they're supposed to be. Because the scriptures tell us that the government is the servant for our good. God calls the governments servants. Interestingly, it's interesting, isn't it? But the Gentile leaders, the world doesn't see the leaders like that. They see people in power as people who, you know, have control and can do stuff the way that they want, not come and serve people. That's what the government's supposed to do, is serve, protect. So, um, Jesus here really seems to be saying that they are ruling completely wrong because true leadership models Jesus' own leadership. Service and sacrifice. Giving up one's rights for another. But the way of the kingdom of God is the way of the servant and the slave. The word servant carries the idea of a freeman who serves. It stresses services rendered, right? So a servant is one who freely renders service. A slave denotes the involuntary aspect of slavery, basically being under someone's control, and it is illegal. And so God's kingdom values service and also has two major principles. Number one, the greatest is actually the servant. The greatest is the one who cares and serves others. Number two, the first is committed to being a slave who foregoes their rights for others. And this is demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Because though he was the son of man, God himself, he didn't come for people to serve him, but to serve people. And more than this, to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know if you know this, but the, the mission of CPC is to love God, to love people, and to make disciples. 
The connection of service is how you both love. I don't know if you know, but worship, worship comes from a word that means servants. And loving others, you serve them. So, and then you've got the gospel, which is so that others could come in and enter into it. And we serve others by giving them the gospel, by being unashamed of the gospel to the world, and being willing to take persecution and difficulty for those things. And so there's a very real sense that even in what we have as our mission, our vision of loving God, loving people, and making disciples, is at the core of the heart of service. Now, Jesus, he didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve. And, but he also came to give his life as a ransom for many. So it's important to see why these are principles of the kingdom, though, right? The principles of that the, uh, the greatest is the servant and the, the first is being committed to being a slave. These principles are there because the character of God is in them. I mean, he doesn't tell us and command us to do service because it's outside of his character. Have you thought about that? How is the God of the universe willing to serve? It doesn't make sense. Not to my puny mind. If I'm, if I'm the creator and originator of all things and all things subsist in me, all things need to do what I want them to do, and I shouldn't be serving them, they should be serving me. We're supposed to, of course. But our God served us. He says, hey, I'll tell you what. I'll show you what it looks like to be the way that I've made you to serve. And so God is not a power monger. God does not grasp at power. He doesn't grasp at authority. He has it. But he uses it to do good, to love, to serve. And so Jesus demonstrates these principles in the most powerful and the fullest way. They're the first kingdom principle, which the greatest servant is the greatest, is found and is seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. Jesus is first. He's first because he's last. He made himself last for our sake. He's before all. He created all things. Yet he gave up his glory and was committed to everybody else's good at his own expense. Jesus is the greatest slave. You want to look at where you find the idea of a servant, of a, of a deacon in the Bible? It's Jesus. Jesus is the deacon. He is the deacon. And so Jesus is not only the first in his own right because of who he is, but he's first by the kingdom principle. Why? Because he left glory, took on humanity, lived and died for our sake, bore God's wrath, and became last so that we could be with him. But the second kingdom principle is the greatest foregoes their rights. Jesus is the greatest then, isn't he? Because he has absolute authority and should be served by all. He's eternal and unchangeable, the great I am. He created all things, and in, them all, in him all things exist. Yet he came in humility to serve, but not to be served. Jesus is the greatest servant. And as such, he not only is the greatest in his own right, for he has always existed and is magnificent, wonderful, all-powerful, and reigns over heaven and earth, but he's the greatest by this kingdom principle as well. Why? Because he's the greatest servant that ever lived. He served us as he emptied himself, Paul says, 
By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 7-8. So we can see that his servanthood, is, we can see his servanthood because though he is the son of man, God himself, he didn't come for people to serve him, but to serve them. He's the shepherd who went after the sheep. Who left the 99 to go after the one. And more than this, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. So this then allows us to see why he would be exalted. He not only is the first and greatest by the nature of just being the creator and who he is, but he's the first and greatest by the kingdom principles that we saw because of what he did. So he's first and greatest because of who he is, but he's first and greatest because of what he did in this world. He willingly performed God's plan to redeem his people. And so Paul writes, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There was a commentator who wrote, Jesus as the messianic servant offers himself as a guilt offering in compensation for the sins of the people. The release effected by this offering overcomes man's alienation from God, his subjection to death, and his bondage to sin. Jesus' service is offered to God to release men from their indebtedness to God. So basically what the ransom is, is it's a buyback. It's a buyback. Jesus paid the penalty so that we could be bought back, just like the Israelites were released from the Passover, the Passover by the death of the Lamb, the death of bought back his people by his suffering, by his life, by all that he was. Isaiah 53, 10 to 12, which was read as our scripture reading, shows us that Jesus came to fulfill the task of the servant of Yahweh. He voluntarily gave up his life as a sacrifice offered in place of a guilty person to remove their guilt. And by the way, you can see that in Leviticus chapter 5, 17 and 18. The fulfillment of that is in Christ. So this is close to the idea of ransom. The payment to secure release from slavery to the world and slavery to sin. So the whole idea is brought out in the phrase many. As the beneficiaries of the servant's self-offering, he bears their sin to make them righteous. Many righteous. The whole thrust, if I could have you do it this week, read Isaiah 50 to 53. The whole thrust is to show the servant of the Lord who suffers and dies to redeem his people by his own life as a substitute for our guilt and for our sin. So Jesus is the first and greatest because he came, became a servant in order to save us from the penalty that we deserved so that we could be with God. And he did this so that we could live like him as servants of others. And he showed us the heart of God, the heart of a servant. The only way that you develop the heart of a servant is if you look at the servant's heart, at the heart of God, and see God as the one who showed a servant the most clearly in all the universe. Because you can see a lot of people who serve. But who served to the extent that they gave up their life and bore eternal wrath for others? Now that is service. So what is our culture? 
We can't even compare. No, look to Jesus and continue to serve. Look to Jesus and continue to let your yourself be poured out, like Paul says, as a drink offering. Let your life be poured out in service because your king, your maker, your redeemer, your friend, your lover, the God of the universe, he did it for you. So your motivation is the character and nature of God himself. That's why the trunk of the tree is a servant's heart. A student in a Bible school in the Philippines was disturbed over the condition of the men's restrooms there. So when nothing was done to clean them, he took matters into his own hands and went and told the principal of the school. A little while later, the student noticed that the problem was being corrected, but he saw with amazement that the man with the mop and the pail in hand was the principal himself. Later, the student commented, I thought that he would call a janitor but he cleaned the toilets himself. It was a major lesson to me on being a servant, and of course, it raised a question in my own mind as to why I hadn't taken care of the problem. Francis Schaeffer said this, if we have the world's mentality of wanting the foremost place, we are not qualified for Christian leadership. If you want to be first, you're not qualified for Christian leadership. This mentality, he goes on, can lift us into ecclesiastical leadership, right? Because you look like you have leadership skills, so they promote you, right? But actually, you know, like the principle at work, like you get promoted to a degree of, of ignorance, that, right? So, so that's the problem. If you go to be a, a, a leader in the church, and you look like you have leadership skills from the world, but you actually don't have a servant's heart, you've been promoted into a place that you actually shouldn't be. be. And it's kind of like being promoted into a management position. You don't even know how to deal with people at all. So he says, it unfits us for real spiritual leadership, wanting a name that's great. Then he continues, to the extent that we want power, we are in the flesh. And he says, and listen to this, and the Holy Spirit has no part in us. And I think he's right. If you live for yourself, if you live to be a leader, if you live to be great, then you don't know the Holy Spirit and you don't have him in you. The question we have to ask ourselves is this, how are we like the disciples? How am I like the disciples? How are we, how am I trying to get positions of power instead of positions of service? Like in the church, it seems like everybody should be running to how they can serve the most if you read this, right? Where's the most service I can do in the church? Not, oh, I want to be up front, or I want to be there, or I want to be this, or I want to be that, right? Can you see it? So for pastors, it's easy to want to be a success, right? To see our influence expand and to say, see more and more people and have them all say these wonderful things about us, right? It's easy to want to be served and not simply to serve others because that's natural to our, our, our sin nature. It's easy to make it about us. It's easy to make it about us being first. Well, that's, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to come to work today because i got to study. What is that? What is that? It doesn't look like Jesus to me. This attitude has nothing to do with the gospel. It looks more like James and John in Mark chapter 10. And let me tell you, let me tell you, 
in my own heart, in my own heart, I have to be able to say, like Paul, be imitators of me. And as a pastor, if I'm not willing to serve, if I'm not willing to live a servant's heart and engage in the work of ministry just like everyone in this body, then I have no business being up front, and up front here and teaching you anything at all. Because what I have to say means nothing because it's not from the Spirit of Christ, who is, has the heart of God, which is the heart of the servant. So, there is no room for questions about greatness in this church. There is no room for that question. I want to I make that clear. That's not a question. How are, how are we walking, right? Jesus is the first and greatest. Our job is simply to live our lives like he did for others, being a servant of all and glorifying and magnifying his name. True greatness consists in self-giving, in pouring ourselves out for others' sake and for God's glory. To be great means to love. To be great means to love. The rule of life, the trunk of the tree for a disciple of Jesus is this, love expressed in service. All of us, elders, deacons, to the smallest child, we should be living lives of service. Only by serving do we become great. And ironically, those who are in our community and serve the most, they deserve the most recognition. So you want to know who deserves the most recognition in the church? Are the people who are giving and pouring themselves out in service to others. These people, are most like Christ. Are we striving to be like Jesus by living a life of servanthood for and to others? You see, living as a servant is the heart of God. And so, as God's children, we should be living our own lives with a servant's heart. Father, break us. Break me. Break out from us the desire of being made much of. You alone are the one to be made much of. You alone are the one to receive all glory and honor. And yet you alone show sacrifice more than any that ever met your And so would you let us see Jesus so clearly in front of us that our lives would be lived in a way that would be serving loving others. We thank you and we need your help. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.